Once again, I want to say good morning to all. Uh, happy to be here. Happy to be able to uh, stand before you now and as we open up the Word of God and examine what is inside. You'll notice the theme for this month, exalted expectations. I don't remember, or I don't expect for you to remember a sermon that I preached all the way back in what I believe was January, but I preached a sermon that was entitled, Exalted Expectations. Uh, If I had perhaps just looked to my left and saw that same phrase scheduled for the month of September, perhaps I uh, wouldn't have done that. But in it, I started in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, showing that we have been exalted. We have been placed in the heavenly places in Christ. And uh, what all the expectations are met with uh, that from the practical section of the book of Ephesians, that we ought to walk in unity, love, light, and wisdom. That's probably along the lines of what I would be doing today had I not shot myself in the foot all those months back. But here we are. I want to, uh, I want to begin by asking you a, a series of questions and obviously don't feel obligated to answer back. Why are we here right now? How did you know to come here on Sunday morning? Why have we done what we have done thus far? How did we know to sing? How did we know to pray? How did we know to remember uh, the death of our Lord? Why am I up here right now? We know to do all of these things because of the book that hopefully each of us are holding in our hands uh, today. Just think of how lost we would be, and that's true in a number of ways, but think of how lost we would be uh, if we didn't have this book to guide us. We can observe from nature that there is a God. But remember that it is the Word of God that specifically tells us that that's true in places like Psalm 19 or Romans chapter 1. Without uh, this book, we wouldn't know what that God uh, expected of us or what He desires for us to do. The Bible tells us of its own nature. When the Hebrew writer would say, uh, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, Hebrews 4 and verse 12. And not only are we given the nature of uh, the Word, but we are also uh, told what to do with it. Lon read aloud for us earlier a portion of uh, Psalm 119. And our lesson this morning could have easily come from that psalm where the psalmist dedicates all 176 verses to declaring his love or his appreciation for the word or the law of God. But in that psalm, the psalmist uh, early on says in verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Or when, when Paul would tell the young preacher Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. So the word is powerful and we ought to hide it in our hearts and handle it correctly. But in thinking about how much this book that we call the Bible means to us, it seems to me that this piece of literature is what what we ought to uh, have our lives be centered around. It it should be the the main uh, factor in all of our decision-making. It ought to, as described in the blessed man of Psalm 1, be what we think about both day and night. There was a phrase that originated in the uh, 600s A.D. called uh, the people of the book. It was actually a phrase that was originated by the Muslim religion and describing the the Jewish people. 
In the Quran, it was commented that uh, the Jewish people were so entrenched in the Torah that they had come to be defined according to it. They had lived their lives solely and strictly around this text, and for that's what they would be known by, people of the book. To the Muslims, it was a derogatory term. But I say that uh, this term is inadvertently a title of, of great honor. And uh, though that term was meant for the Jews, friends, I submit to you that that ought to be what describes the people of God today, the, the, the Christian nation. Now, as we consider this book further, there are a few words that come to my mind when thinking about it. First, this book that we call the Bible is a story. It seems strange to me, but uh, we often forget that this book is first a story. And whenever I say it's a story, I don't, I don't mean it's, it's a fairy tale. To say something is a story just means that it's, the, uh, the, it's a record of something or, or the telling of something. And oftentimes we treat this book not to be a story, but we treat it more like a theological treatise. We, th- we treat it more like a, a doctrinal handbook. I know that I mentioned earlier that it is the reason that we know what to do and how to do it, but it is so much more than that. It's the story of God. And you know, in stories, often the main character is introduced first. Well, think about how the Bible opens up. In the beginning, God. In the simplest terms, it's the story of how he created us, how we left him, and how we can then get get back to him. It's first a story. Next, this book is true, which is ultimately what we should be concerned about. Something can sound nice, but if it's not true, it has no substance to it. But what, what you'll hear in many circles today is that truth simply does not Exist. There is no objectivity in the world. There is only subjective views. Uh, there, there's only what, what you think to be true and not things that are just true. First, I would question that line of thinking by uh, asking, is that really true or is that just your opinion? Is that uh, objectively true or is that just subjective? But I suppose that's for a different day. But this book testifies of itself that it is objective truth. The proverb writer would say in Proverbs 23, 23, buy the truth and do not sell it. Again, the psalmist would say in Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Jesus said, as we know in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So there's no way around the fact that this book says that there is real truth in the world and that that is contained inside of it. And finally, this book is complete. We'll have more to say about completeness in a little while. But first, this book is completed or it is uh, finished. Jude would write in Jude verse 3 saying, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. There is no such thing as revelation from God past the Bible because this book is complete. It's lacking nothing. Nothing should be added to or taken away from it. So this book that we hold in our hands is a story that is true and it is completed. But as we consider some expectations for an exalted people this month, there are some expectations of us whenever we approach this book. We cannot use it just however we want, but there are some guidelines uh, to living by this word. And this morning I want to look at three of those. Three expectations from an exalted people about how to use this book. Number one, when approaching the word of God, there is an expectation to stay within its boundaries. 
We're here to talk about the Bible, so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. As we turn our, book, or our attention to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we come to Moses giving the law of God to Israel uh, for the second time to the second generation of Israel. And when you get to chapter 5, you'll notice something that might be quite familiar to us. If you look at verses uh, 6 through 22, Moses is retelling the Ten Commandments. Those ten tenets by which Israel was to generally live their lives by. Then he's going to go on to give more specific commandments in their everyday living. After this, in chapter 6, he is going to sum up those commands by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Chapter 6 and verse 5. But before that, God relays a message through Moses, a principle about his word. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 28. Said, Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words with, uh, of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it may be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Notice again, if you would, what God said in verse 29. He said, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. You don't think God knows what is best for us? He says, oh, that, that they would keep my laws. If only we would abide by the word of God, then we would make life for us a, a whole lot easier. It reminds me again of what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 136, where he says, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. But what we want to notice in particular is what Moses says in verse 32, that, that, that we be diligent to do as the Lord our God has commanded us. That uh, we don't turn aside from it, that we don't veer to the, the right or the left, but that we, uh, that, that we meet it dead on. I'm sure you've heard an analogy similar, similar to this uh, before, but uh, the word of God is much like a highway. What do you have on a highway? You, you have markers to, to indicate where you ought to stay in. What happens if you venture outside of those lines? Danger. What happens if, if you veer too far to the right? Well, you run the risk of falling off the highway. What if you uh, veer too far to the left? Well, you run, you run the risk of hitting someone else. And that's the same kind of thing that Moses is saying here about God's word. You, you don't go to the left, you don't go to the right, but, but, but you go straight. We, we also could have used Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, where God is commissioning Joshua to do his work and to take the land that he promised Israel where he told him, only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to the, uh, all the law which, sir, my, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. 
Or maybe whenever Paul used him himself and Apollos as an example for the Corinthian brethren to not go beyond what is in the Scriptures, where he says that you may learn in us not to go beyond that which is written in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. We need to learn to always be asking the same question that, that Paul asked in Galatians, 4, in Galatians 4 and verse 30, where he says, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Or finally, where, where Peter would say in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. In order to be people of the book, in order to be people who are ordering their lives according to this book, according to the word of God, we're going to have to be careful to stay within its boundaries. We're going to have to always first consider what, what, what God has said before we uh, think of what, what we ought to say. We need to first consider what God thinks about something before we begin to formulate an opinion. And it may be wise for us to adopt the language of Scripture into our vocabulary. We had a, a, a teacher at Southwest. He's, he's still there. But if you just listen to him talk, you will notice that he is careful to use the language of Scripture. Why? Because he's trying diligently to stay within the boundaries that the Word of God sets. God, through the prophet Isaiah, said in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, he said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, uh, your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And many, many take those verses to, to think or to say that God's knowledge is way above where our knowledge could ever be. And while that's true in of itself, if you look at the context, what God is actually doing is he is condemning Israel for not uh, thinking like him. That his thoughts weren't their thoughts. That his ways weren't their ways. Whenever we open up this book that we call the Bible, what we ought to be striving to do always is to become more like the one that is revealed in this book. We recognize God as being perfect, and therefore we want to align our ways with his ways and our thoughts with, with his thoughts. But in order to do that, we cannot stray from his word whatsoever. The moment that we do, we have failed. We have, uh, whether we realize it or not, we have admitted that our, uh, in our minds that, that our ways are better than his ways and, we, and that we know better. But first, as Christians who have committed themselves uh, to the word of God, to know it and to do it, one of the things that are expected of us is to abide by the boundaries that God has set in his word, to not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Number two this morning, when approaching the word of God, there is an expectation to leave out uh, personal feelings. And when I say that we ought to leave out personal feelings, don't get me wrong. Whenever we uh, approach this book, we ought to have real emotions about it. We ought to be passionate uh, about it. What I'm talking about is something completely different. There is a dangerous trend among those who study the Bible, and I would have to think that this has been a dangerous trend since the Word has been studied. Uh, And that is to read a portion of Scripture and say, okay, here is what I think this means. And don't get me wrong, there are some places in Scripture where that is actually needed. Some places in Scripture are not abundantly clear, so they take some discernment and some judgment calls in trying to figure out their meaning. What I'm talking about is the idea that this entire book is completely subjective. That there's no real, one real thing that it means, but its, its meaning is different to all from, from, from all different perspectives. Friends, that's not true. God has ordered his word to, by and large, be something that is relatively easy to comprehend. 
There are some parts in it that are, that are difficult, but uh, the general thrust of Scripture is, is, is generally uh, pretty easily to understand. Whenever we approach Scripture as something that we can make mean whatever we want it to mean, we have completely misused it. Because this book itself testifies that while our hearts or while our emotions are unreliable, God and his word are always to be trusted. Solomon would say in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Or when he would again say in Proverbs 21, 2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Or when God, through Jeremiah, would say in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it or who can understand it? But the particular verse that I want to focus on uh, more is in 1 John chapter 3. If you would be turning your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And as we come to John's writings, he is writing to the brethren to conduct damage control. Some had come in among them preaching and teaching that Christ had not come in the flesh. And now, now John is writing to the brethren to encourage them to press on in the truth. And if you survey chapters 3 and 4, you will see that John tells us so many things about love. But the verse that I'm thinking of, I don't think has anything to do with, with either of those things. Look at uh, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 20. John says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. The ESV translates this verse with the accurate implication that at some point our heart is going to condemn us. It says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So we've got our hearts, we've got our emotions which can sway our judgments, our judgment. Our emotions play a big part in our decision making. But what does John say here? He says that God is bigger than all of that. God is greater than our heart, greater than our emotions, because he knows all things while we do not. And how do we know what, what, what God thinks? How does God demonstrate his greatness? Through uh, the way that he communicates with us today. Through what we can read and know about him. But we need to apply this verse in 1 John 3 for whenever we approach the word of God. There is a definite answer to everything in the Bible. This could hurt to hear, maybe not, but uh, what we think about a verse doesn't necessarily have any bearing on what it actually means. We need to let our, 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 our minds be immersed in the word of God, let God's, God's ways be our ways, his thoughts be our thoughts, and then we can come to some logical conclusions about his word despite our emotions, despite what we might want to think. Again, wisdom is shown whenever we recognize how great God is compared to to us, that his way is always better than, than what we might think. There are a number of things in the word of God that might be difficult for us. It might be difficult for us to accept that there is a particular sin that we are constantly tempted by that needs to be uh, repented of. We know that there's no temptation that we can't overcome, but we also know that sometimes it doesn't feel that way. For instance, uh, it might be difficult for us to accept that we continually have to be forgiving one another despite how hard that might be. Or what in God's word has given folks more trouble than God's law of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So there is a lot of baggage that our emotions could bring to the word of God. But despite that, if you look a little further in 1 John, John says this in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 
How can John say that? Knowing uh, all the things that are difficult for us in God's word, how can John say his commandments are not burdensome? His commandments aren't burdensome for those who can recognize that God's laws are here for our benefit. For those who can recognize that, uh, that the, the burdens that come with disobeying the word of God is much more costly than obedience. So again, whenever we approach the word, we know that we ought to be passionate that we, uh, and have real emotions about reading and studying what, what God has revealed. But we need to be careful that we're more concerned with what it actually says rather than what we might want it to say. And ultimately allowing God's view of things to be our view of things. And the more that we continue in these practices, the more we're going to agree with John that his commandments are indeed not burdensome. Number three, and finally this morning, when approaching the word of God, there is an expectation to consider it in its entirety. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 20. To Acts chapter 20, this being obviously in the midst of uh, the book of Acts, in the midst of Paul's journeying around the known world, spreading the gospel, extending salvation to the uttermost parts of the world. And in chapter 20, verses 17 to 38, Paul uh, had called for the elders of the church at Ephesus to speak with him before he continued in his journeys. He talks about his conduct among them in verses 17 through 21, about how he conducted himself with integrity among them, about how his good conduct was uh, obvious to them. He talks about his conviction in verses 22 through 24, about how he knew that, that trials and bondage awaited him, but that was all right with him because he knew that, that would, it would turn out for the furtherance of the gospel. And now in verses 25 through 27, we find here Paul's completeness. Look with me beginning in Acts chapter 20 and verse 25. He says, And indeed now I know that you all, among whom I have uh, gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you that this day I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul felt confident about his time in Ephesus, that he was innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because he had declared to them the whole counsel of God. So if someone were to have heard the preaching of Paul or maybe would have uh, spoken to him personally, he felt confident in what he presented because he presented the whole counsel of God. And once again, when we approach the word of God, we need to bring this same attitude, considering the whole counsel of God, considering it in its entirety. When it comes to studying or, or, or preaching from God's word, there are two extremes that we could take. On one hand, we could only focus on those things that seem nice to us, that seem pleasant to us, that uh, the, the, the fact that God loves us, the fact that he himself is love, the, the grace that he extends to all men, uh, that we who have ex accepted that grace need to be loving one another. Those are all great things to study, to preach on, and to think about, but if that's all we're setting our minds on, then we're not considering God's word in its entirety. And on the other hand, we could spend all of our energy on biblical things that people aren't going to like. Maybe you know a person, a preacher, or maybe even a congregation in the Lord's church who spends all of their studies on hot-button issues of today that will gain the most attention. Those are things that we need to be doing, that the world needs to hear the truth regardless if, if they want to hear it or not. But if we're using God's word as nothing more than a platform to gain attention and, and to offend people, then I really can't think of a worse misuse of it. So those are two extremes. 
And where do we need to be? We need to be somewhere in the middle of those two. We need to be balanced in our approach to the Word of God. We need to be giving our full attention to uh, those things that, that, are, that are true and that are pleasant, but also those things that are just as true, but maybe not as pleasant. Those things that uh, God has promised for those who obey Him, as, long as, the, uh, as well as those things uh, that uh, will come upon those who do not obey Him. You know, if you truly love something, you're going to be interested in every facet of that thing. Husbands, wives, uh, imagine if your spouse acted as if a major part of your life simply did not exist. Your hobbies, your, your, your career, your interests, whatever it may be. Well, what if they showed so little interest in those things that to them they weren't even a part uh, of your lives? How would that make you feel? Would that make you feel loved? Would that make you feel appreciated? Would that make you feel valued? I, I surely wouldn't think so. If you love something or, or someone, you're going to be interested in every facet of that thing or that person. The same goes for God's word. We have to be concerned with all of it. We need to study all of it. And we need to also declare to the world the whole counsel of God. So once again, as exalted people with exalted uh, expectations, there are some expectations concerning this book that I hope each of us have been flipping through together this morning. That we are expected to strictly stay within its boundaries. That we are expected to approach it with no regard for our own personal feelings, but in regard for what God thinks. And that uh, we are to consider it in its entirety, not, not going with the, in with the attitude of giving attention to one part to the neglect of all the others. Perhaps you are of the opinion that the, that the things that have been discussed this morning are maybe too elementary. I hope that's not the case. Again, as people of the book, we have made the decision that uh, this is the book that we are going to let our lives be guided by. And that is something that we therefore need to be constantly mindful of. That we wouldn't know the nature of the God that is in heaven without it. Or what kind of people that he wills we ought to be. Now have you lived your life in accordance with that will? Again, we have moved from, from last month to this month in a logical succession. We talked about the fact that we're saved. And because we have been saved and placed in this exalted position, there are some things that are expected of us. The Word of God tells us how to do both of those things. If you have not accepted the grace of God that brings salvation or conformed your life according to the Word of God this morning, it isn't too late. If you have any need this morning, please come while we stand and while we sing.